Shrinkwrap Radio number 868, Harvard professor David Rossman, Ph.D., on Thriving with Anxiety. And now it's time for Dr. Dave and Shrinkwrap Radio. Radio, all the psychology you need to know, and just enough to make it dangerous. It's all in your head. And now, here's your host, Dr. Dave. My guest today is David H. Ross Moran, PhD. He's the founder of the Center for Anxiety an associate professor at Harvard Medical School and director of the McLean Hospital Spirituality and Mental Health Program. We'll be discussing his new book, Thriving with Anxiety, Nine Tools to Make Your Anxiety Work for You. Now, here's the interview. Dr. David Rossmarin, welcome to Shrinkwrap Radio. Thanks very much for having me on your show. Well, I'm really glad to have you here. We're going to be discussing your new book, uh, Thriving with Anxiety. Mm-hmm. And um, in the preface, you uh, mentioned that over the 20 years of your practice, all people fall into four broadly defined groups of emotional and behavioral health. And uh, you mentioned them as flourishing, languishing, distressed, and severely distressed. So maybe, yep. we, maybe we can start with you taking us through each of those four. Tell us about those. Yeah, I'd be, I'd be very happy to. Um, maybe just before we get to that, you know, the premise of my book, Thriving with Anxiety, the goal is not to make people less anxious. And if, uh, if you're expecting to be less anxious today, I think that's actually one of the reasons why we get more anxious. The uh, intro, which you're referring to, is where I talk about how the concept of thriving with anxiety actually applies really across the board to people with different levels of distress. And as you mentioned, there are those of us who are those of us who are flourishing. Flourishing doesn't mean we're trying hard. It just means we're succeeding. So sometimes people have a lot of, you know, bull market. Things are going well and, you know, they've got some some tailwinds and. You know, maybe they inherited some money, uh, you know, maybe uh, just a windfall, right place at the right time. You know, we've all, I hope, been there at some points in our lives. Um, and that can lead to flourishing where things, you know, we, we don't need professional help or anything like it. But even then, people have a little bit of anxiety. Things come up, you know, there's going to be relationship bumps. There's going to be, you know, a bruised knee. There's going right. to be... Just stuff, vicissitudes of life. Well, I appreciate that uh, realistic recognition (laughs) in your book of the uh, vicissitudes of life, which are really with us. Right, and that doesn't mean something's wrong or pathological. It just, this is life. There are bumps and bruises along the way, and 
you know, kids know this and, you know, adolescents to a lesser extent and adults to a, to an even lesser extent, but it is a reality that that's, you know, and then there are folks who are languishing who, who are not clinical, if you will, the clinically, you know, uh, depressed or distressed or anxious or, or, or otherwise, and don't necessarily need professional help or have a diagnosable, you know, billable code, that kind of thing. But nevertheless, they're meh, you know, as, as Adam Grant famously put it in his New York Times op-ed during the 2020 uh, pandemic. Um, they're meh, they're feeling eh, you're like not great, not not flourishing, but also not, you know, and, and that's, there's a lot of people in that middle. Um, and uh, for, that, for them too, uh, for us, for those of us who are in that camp, uh, learning to deal with anxiety as a positive force and to harness it and to, to thrive with it as a, as a catalyst to moving forward, I think is very relevant. Then there are the folks who are distressed and severely distressed, and I'll talk about them in, in unison. Um, the, the only difference is how much professional treatment is needed. Just severely distressed would be like an inpatient psychiatric ward, um, sure. such as McLean Hospital, where I work, or people who need a partial hospital program. They basically can't function day to day because of extremely high levels of depression and anxiety or you know, yeah, other symptoms as well, even substance abuse. And then there's the distress to who need professional help, whether it's therapy, um, you know, whether it's uh, pharmacology, combination thereof, um, on an outpatient basis. So basically functioning day to day, but you know, once, twice a week, need to check in with uh, a professional in order to, to manage. And then for, for them, certainly um, for, for those folks, those among us, um, but we're all, for, for, you know, for them, certainly thriving with anxiety has a lot of relevance. But really, no matter where you are, if you're a human being, you're going to have some anxiety. And that's kind of the main point of my book. Um, and how we respond to that, what we do with it is really the, more important than whether we have it in the first place. Yeah, well, you illustrate that well <clears throat> in, uh, in, in the beginning of the book, uh, sharing a delightful story that illustrates that you're not immune to anxiety yourself. Oh, I'm certainly not. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and also one of the things that that we know is that uh, uh, sometimes good good things that happen can be anxiety arousing. And so um, tell us, uh, take us through that anecdote that you start the book with, uh, where uh, you had a, a, an opportunity came your way to start an anxiety center down sure. in New York. Now you're up in Cambridge and now Boston, you find, yeah. and now they want you to start a center. <laughs> Is it, so sure. what were all the anxieties that came up for you? Around uh, I'm happy to tell you the story. You also, you said something else there, which was really interesting is that sometimes anxiety happens when we're actually feeling really good. Yeah. And uh, I just, I'll tell the story, but I would make one to make sure we circle back to that because that is, a really insightful point and um, actually a critical one that more and more um, I think it'd be worth digging into that a little more, but I'll okay, tell you, this good. I'll tell you the story. So, you know, I, I just finished a fellowship at, um, at Harvard medical school in, uh, in um, clinical psychology. And I was learning how to do cognitive and dialectical behavior therapy, these forms of evidence-based psychotherapy with acute psychiatric patients. Um, and I felt uh, I was reasonably trained. I had, uh, you know, good credentials. I had, uh, I was, I was publishing. I was, you know, I was, had done research before. And I had a faculty position here. And this opportunity came up through uh, really a philanthropic gift, uh, independent of, uh, of uh, my work in the, in the academy. 
um, to start this program in New York. And uh, I knew it was going to be a bit of a slog, but I didn't realize how much. I didn't realize, you know, commuting three, four hours on the train from New York, from Boston to New York, putting in a full day there, two days there, and then coming back, what that would really do to me. I I never never done that before and i and more importantly in new york i was not a known entity and i thought people would come right away it's an anxious city you know i have some expertise in anxiety i got the url uh centerforanxiety.org had a great website and you know we launched it nicely and it was crickets you know there's no patients coming in and and uh, here i am you know uh, <laughs> two weeks goes by four weeks goes by six weeks goes by and then it was just, there was a big thud. I'll tell you what happened. I got off the subway. I got off the train rather one day. I got out of Penn Station. At the time it was Penn Station. And I was walking to my office and I had only one patient who I was seeing who was at, at a reduced fee at that. So I was coming in, seeing this one patient doing administrative work the rest of the day and then coming home. I guess like a 16 hour day. Yeah. I was losing money on the day. It was, it was really bad. And I get off the train and the patient texts me that he's canceling his session. Oh my make. goodness! Yeah, so you so, you commuting all this way, spending was, all the, all this time getting your your own excitement and hopes up, and uh, and and, and you you're the you're the hot yeah. young guy at this point in the field, but well, I thought I was, but, but, I thought but, I was, but really I'm a nobody in New York. Yeah, I thought yeah. I was like a hot shot Harvard guy, and then you know, in the meantime. Immediately, like within a block of getting the text message, I started to feel really panicky and uh, my like my chest is constricting and my wow. blood is going and it, and it wasn't a full panic attack, but it was definitely very uncomfortable. And then I start to judge myself. You call yourself an anxiety expert? Yeah, yeah. Here right. you are. You're anxious. What's wrong with you, David? And then there's then always there's, a sort of devil on our shoulder right? that's exactly where it was right yeah. it's like <laughs> chiding me and that's making my anxiety a lot worse and then i'm catastrophizing you're just you're gonna have super high anxiety this is never gonna work this was a stupid idea what were you thinking you're gonna fail and even if you are successful like you have anxiety yourself so like let's you know, what is this? You know, and do I recall that, that you were eating badly for some reason? Uh, yeah, yeah. I wasn't taking you were care of myself in, at all. You were in a yeah. food desert or something? <laughs> well, I mean, New York's got plenty of options, but, you know, not ones that I could afford at the time. And I was, you know, it was a fast food kind of situation for me. And really not, not it was a, a bit of a low point for self-care and for self-compassion and a high point for catastrophizing. And, and I caught myself. I was on, I remember I was on 6th Avenue. I was walking down from Penn Station to the Flatiron District, straight down past the uh, Fashion Institute of Technology, for those of you who know the city. And I caught myself and I said, David, stop, stop. You are a human being and this is crazy and your feelings are normal. And anxiety is not a disease. This is nothing to be ashamed of and it's nothing to catastrophize about. Um, there are plenty of anxious people here. It's just going to take some time and you just got to learn how to turn these symptoms into something positive. And right then and there, I said, I'm not going to help people to get rid of their anxiety. I'm going to help people to thrive with it. I'm going to help people to use it in a positive way. In fact, that's what uh-huh. I pro- call my program center for anxiety. It's not center for anxiety relief or center for anxiety treatment. It's center for anxiety. Cause you want to learn how to use it properly. Come deal with it. 
harness it in a positive way in your life. And I did in the coming days and weeks. I started talking to my wife a lot more. I really opened up my heart to her and showed her how, how I was struggling, which was great. It was amazing for our marriage. I, uh, eat, I ate better. I was more self-compassionate, um, more kind to myself, gave myself uh, more time. Um, I, um, um, and most of all, I just tolerated the uncertainty and said, you know, David, you don't know, like you're a human being. You're just, you know, maybe, you know, maybe you have, uh, some Harvard credentials, but that doesn't mean that you're, uh, able to, <laughs> able to pull anything that anyone else can't do. So yeah. Yeah. Just, just, and I, I really you appreciate know. your sharing your humanity in the, in the book in that way and the story and the, the critical juncture really is that place where you get this turnaround, uh, this sort of cognitive turnaround of, wait a second, right? And uh, catching ourselves when we're yeah. in the midst of panic and and so on, and and uh, that's running like a, like a runaway train. And then there's this moment of recognition. Do, do you have a tip of how a person can come to that place where they can interrupt that I, I think yeah i i wouldn't call it a tip i, I think there's some tools and skills okay. that we all need to do and able to do this and the, the overarching concept behind all of those skills runs counter though to the way that we've been taught to think about anxiety most people think about it as a disease or at least a disorder and they excuse me they think i shouldn't feel this way something's wrong with me i'm supposed to feel happy all the time I'm yeah. supposed to feel good. I'm spo not supposed to feel this discomfort. Something's wrong. I need to get rid of it. I can't tolerate this. And that's, it's a lie. It's just not true. Anxiety is a part of life. It's not a disease. It doesn't mean that we're broken in some way. If anything, it means that we're, that we're alive. The only, the only people I know who don't have any anxiety, Dave, are people who are dead. <laughs> <laughs> And psychopaths, right? And psychopaths, interesting. And sociopaths, <laughs> also people who are consistently using substances and numb out completely. Oh, oh yeah. Uh, yeah. Although usually it catches up with them. The psychopaths, maybe not. But yeah, if you're not, if you have anxiety, consider yourself blessed. It's only a question of how much, um, and how we can use it, and how we can learn to use it in positive, mm. in positive, constructive ways. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things you, 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 I mean, we've always had anxiety, but you refer to, you say we're now living in the new age of anxiety. Uh, how so? What's the evidence for that? Well, yeah, there's a lot of evidence for it. The rates of anxiety are through the roof. You know, before the pandemic, it was 19.1% of the population every year, right? That's 50 million adults. And now it's about 25% higher. So these are incredible numbers. Among teens and young adults, the oh, rates yeah. in the last two years, three years rather, have jumped up 50%. And it's not just a matter of report. You know, look at look at levels of suicide. The suicide rate in America, it's the second leading cause of death for young individuals under age 35. This is a public health uh, crisis. And we have uh, levels of people going on disability. I mean, it's the number one reason for disability is anxiety and depression. We, we are struggling as a nation and as a culture, we are struggling with our mental health like never before in history. And well, uh, that well, is a yeah. 
my, my question actually to, uh, to set you up to talk about that was a little disingenuous because it's really obvious to me at an experiential level that uh, uh, we're at a t- terrible pass right now. We get constantly get bad news that uh, uh, you know there are wars and rumors of war, and there's sure. huge political divisions in our own country. And and it's not clear if if democracy is going to to go the distance and so on. So and we're worried about global warming. So we got climate. I was just going to say, yeah, all of this stuff. That's uh, uh, it's there's a lot to make us anxious. So how do we feel good about that? <laughs> well, it's interesting in in cultures where there's more uncertainty places with lower socioeconomic status, the levels of anxiety are less. I think we've gotten used to feeling comfortable and to expecting that things are going to be good and we're on autopilot all the time. Uh-huh, yeah. We can't tolerate uncertainty. We can't tolerate not being in control. So all of a sudden, when there's climate change, which individuals can't do a whole lot about, groups of people can, governments can, corporations can, don't get me wrong, and we can certainly lobby. But at the end of the day, like, offsetting my own carbon footprint, how much am I really going to do? I have to accept that. That's hard for me to do in the Western society where I have so much of a sense of control and predictability and certainty and where I expect my emotions to be even keeled and happy all the time. That expectation is, I, I think we've sold it to the American public with to great detriment, to great detriment. Yeah. And, in countries where things are less politically stable, there's less, there's lower levels of anxiety because people don't expect to be in control all the time. Who said we're going to be in control? We're humans. Yeah. We're human. We're only human. And that doesn't mean that something's wrong. It just means that once in a while we're, we're going to struggle with, with the reality of life. So one of the things that I'm hearing in in what you're saying is that there are actually ways in which anxiety is good for us. That I think is not, so. Ne- not necessarily a bad thing. So say a little bit more about that. I think it can keep us humble. I think you know part of anxiety is that we recognize that we're not in control all the time, and it you know does, life doesn't get to our head. I think we can be kinder and more mindful of other people's mm-hmm. struggles when we ourselves are struggling. Yeah. Um, you know, I definitely use my own experience of anxiety to, to probe the depths of my patients and, and clients, their, their emotional experiences. I think it's helped me to become a much more sensitive and caring and compassionate therapist, um, and more effective, frankly. Um, and I think in our relationships, the same thing flies outside of a professional life. You know, I, I think I just understand my friends better. Yeah, um, sure. Hopefully my family as well. And, and I think it, you know, things don't get, hopefully things don't get to my head as much um, because I know that my emotions could get, uh, get intense sometimes. Life is, life is tough. Life can be tough, I should say. Um, yeah, I, I, I think, I think the, the, the cement of, of, uh, of friendships really is sharing one's fears and worries and, and vulnerabilities and, you know, being in a relationship where you're safe to do that and uh, I think it's well put. Think about yeah. the closest relationships you have. Who are who is it with? Probably the person you can cry on their shoulder the most. Yeah, yeah, right. That's using our struggles, our emotional struggles, in order to connect with others. Yeah, which is which is a gift. 
Now, you also distinguish between stress and anxiety and um, what's going on there. Sure. So I've had a number of patients who've come to me and they, you know, I'm, I'm anxious, I'm panicking, I'm really struggling. And I'll meet with them and do an assessment and have them complete some measures and talk to them. And uh, I remember one in particular, uh, you know, it's a middle-aged woman. And I said to her, I've got good news and bad news. Well, what's the good news? The good news is that you're not anxious. She's like, what do you mean I'm not anxious? <laughs> I'm having panic attacks. I'm like, well, I don't think you're anxious. I think you're stressed. And that's the bad news. Well, what do I do about stress? Well, stress is when you have too many demands and not enough resources. There's that gap, which creates stress. And there's only one, really two solutions, increase your resources or decrease your demands or, or both. And uh, it's a simple solution. It's hard to implement, but, you know, and here are some strategies for doing that. Two weeks later, she had no panic attacks. Yeah, that's great. So stress is kind of the thing that's out there. It's out there. But uh, anxiety is the reaction to that, right? It's, I would say that's, that's accurate. Yeah. Yeah, was, yeah. The symptoms are the same. Um and stress is when we have too much on our plate and, you know, not enough, uh, not enough plate not <laughs> enough time or not yeah. enough uh, capacity to metabolize it. Yeah. Another uh, metaphor that you use uh, is the canary in the coal mine, which, uh, you know, we've heard for years. Sure. It's kind of uh, uh, the, th the, the thing that's good because it's warning us, it's here to warn us and, Otherwise, we, we might not notice. Yeah, so stress isn't a problem in the short term, but chronic stress can lead to some pretty significant health concerns. And yeah. when people are feeling anxious because of stress, it's very important to recalibrate, to rebalance, to make sure that our demands aren't so much higher than our resources and to bolster our resources so we're able to handle those demands. And if we don't, then that can have some pretty significant uh physical health consequences down the road. So in that regard, anxiety, the response to stress, is our body's way of saying, hey, we got to take care of this financial struggle. We've got to take care of this financial struggle. We've got to take care of this health struggle. We've got to take care of this relationship struggle, whatever it is that's stressing us out. Um, and uh, ignoring it is really at our own at our own peril. That's yet another way that anxiety can be used to, uh, as a positive catalyst to to growth and uh, and uh, greater health. Yeah, I know uh, one of the audiences that you're striving to uh, address in your book are people who are in the the business world, the workaday world, sure. and uh, and uh, particularly people maybe who are in leadership positions. And so you talk a bit about anxiety and leadership. What's the interplay there? Well, interestingly, um, I've seen a number of extremely successful people. In fact, I, I can't remember the last time I met a very successful person who did not have significant amounts of anxiety um, that went along with it. Another uh -huh. place I've seen this is in entertainment, comedians. Oh, comedians yeah. are notoriously anxious. Yeah. Notoriously I, uh, very anxious. Yeah. Yeah. I, and, I, I, yeah. I think of Woody Allen and... Uh, and others sure. of, of that ilk. <laughs> sure, sure. I've had a number of patients who are, you know, professional comedians or professional people in entertainment. Oh, oh really? Um, CEOs. And yeah, it sort of goes with the territory. And 
what's with that? Like, why is that? So in some ways, anxiety, anxiety might be associated with higher levels of intelligence, in fact, overall, because when people are anxious, you're primed for being aware. You're going to yeah. be aware of more information. You're going to take it in. You're going to respond to it better, quicker, faster, more, you know, and if you're a comedian, you got to be on your toes. You got to be reading the audience. You got to, you know, there's a lot of cognitive manipulation in a good way going on there's a lot of cognitive dancing and gymnastics going on in order to make you know and and that takes a level of anxiety in order to do it well in some regards yeah and the same thing goes for ceos i mean it's you know it's it's a stressful job you got however many hundreds of people working for you and got to make big decisions and embracing anxiety and tolerating uncertainty making a call standing with it sticking with it even you're if you're having a hard time even if there are headwinds um, you know, those are, those are skills that, that get taught to people from dealing with anxiety. I used to do a lot of uh, traveling for business and, and, uh, you know, traveling can be sort of a hard thing as you, sure, as, as you know, and, yeah. uh, it can be stressful. And, uh, so my favorite thing to do when traveling was to find a local comedy club and, and you know, and go and watch comedians, and yeah. I imagine that was a way of vicariously working off some of my stress uh, sure. or, or anxiety, because sure. because I was having uh, to perform in my job, you know, going to to a distant city and and leading groups and so on, and and uh, so yeah, I I found it to be a a really good good medicine laughter good medicine um another thing that's sort of embedded in much of what you've been saying is self acceptance uh that the, the part of the solution to living with anxiety is coming to accept yourself as as human as less than perfect etc yeah, you know, I think it's important to be able to laugh at oneself and say, oh, you know, I'm feeling anxious right now. I'm feeling uncomfortable as opposed to like, oh, something's wrong with me and I have to be yeah. perfect all the time. And, yeah, you know, that's that latter message, I think, has seeped into the culture uh, in general. Um, our expectations of feeling good, feeling happy, as opposed to learning to be kind, you know, because of this perspective that we have to be on all the time. When people feel anxious, they'll usually work harder. They'll work faster. They're less kind to themselves. They put on more of a, of a show. They withdraw socially from others. And they try to minimize uncertainty as opposed to, I, I think all of those strategies are moving in the wrong direction in many ways, as opposed to like being more kind to oneself, recognizing my, my body's anxious right now for a reason. I got to be more compassionate. I have to self-care. I have to practice more self-care. I have to relate to others and tell them how I'm feeling and accept the fact that I'm just not going to be in control of this. I mean, all of those are, I think, healthier messages that anxiety calls for us to do, and we're resisting that message. You talk about the anxiety spiral, which I think is a very colorful a metaphor that connects immediately to the idea of of sort of plunging down into, I'm, re- <laughs> I'm rem- remembering the Mel Brooks movie High Anxiety, yeah, <laughs> which <laughs> captures that. Um, 
So talk a bit about that anxiety spiral. And the surprising right. thing is you talk about a positive spiral. Yes. So we'll talk about the anxiety spiral first. I, I think this actually explains the anxiety epidemic that we have today. Just, just to clarify. Since we have an expectation that we should feel good and be happy all the time, the minute we start to feel anxious, we perceive the anxiety as a threat. We think something's wrong. That perception of threat signals our adrenal glands right. to fire off and to pump our bodies primed for the fight or flight response. That only makes the anxiety worse, which then gives us more reason to judge ourselves and to catastrophize something's wrong, which propagates a vicious cycle. And I think that's often, often, if not maybe not always, but often the reason why anxiety gets out of hand in people is because we're judging ourselves and we are catastrophizing about what's going to happen next. And that actually means that we're dumping more adrenaline into our bodies. And it kind of snowballs. It does snowball. Yeah. And the positive cycle instead of this positive spiral, rather, that I speak about in my book is when the minute I feel anxious, I say, oh, hold on. <laughs> this is normal. I'm not you know, I'm responding to this, or this is just part of, it's a misfire in my system and, you know, taking it in stride and understanding that this is nothing necessarily wrong here. And then practicing self-compassion, you know, the days that I feel anxious, that's not the day to take on a new project. That's not the day to start pushing myself to the limit. Yeah. That's a day for, you know, trying to get to bed early, trying to have a reasonable dinner, trying to hang out more with my wife and my kids, trying to, Go for a walk outside, going to exercise more, you know. <clears throat> and if we take that approach, that anxiety doesn't ramp up and doesn't become something that makes things worse. It becomes something that actually is a catalyst to making my life better. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Find the things that, that really nourish you and remember the, the stimuli and the victories and the resources in your life to... Right. <laughs> to increase the uh, salience of, of that dynamic. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So say more about, I mean, it's been embedded in everything that you've been saying, but thriving with anxiety, what does it mean to thrive? Yeah. So thriving, firstly, is a little bit different than flourishing. You know, flourishing is when people are being successful and uh, that might happen just because of dumb luck. Thriving, really, it's the, the, the root of thriving is threefus, which is a Nordic word, in fact, it's, uh, um, from Northern Europe. And it means to grasp or to clutch. And what that really means is that thriving with anxiety, what I mean by it, is when we feel anxious to take hold of the opportunities to increase our relationships with ourselves, to increase our relationships and our connection with others, our humility, our humanness, um, and to come to terms with our very small place in the world. Um, and when we do that, when we clutch, when we grab onto those opportunities, or when we see anxiety as an opportunity to grab onto, and to welcome that, to welcome that experience in the process of our growth, it starts becoming something that instead of fearing and loathing, 
or resigning ourselves to it starts becoming something that we can even celebrate in some ways, which is pretty remarkable. I'm getting the image of somebody climbing up a, a very icy slope and using an ice axe to, <laughs> to grab hold. Well, sometimes it is a steep slope. That's true. I think we should probably practice this when it's a, you know, a more basic slope. Uh, but yeah. uh, yeah, sometimes, sometimes it does get intense and, and uh you know, even in um, folks who are severely distressed, I think we can learn to use anxiety in positive ways um, to open up to whether it's a clinician, a therapist, or whether it's somebody in one's family to have those conversations and to accept it and to sort of bravely um, resist the urge to want to feel good all the time. I think um, that acceptance is really critical and uh, takes a lot of bravery um takes a lot of gumption a lot of uh, a lot of courage um and it also does present an opportunity <clears throat> you know we spoke earlier about uh people particularly in the business world who are trying to uh, excel in their careers while dealing with anxiety so um what's your advice for you know for somebody who's in that position Sure. You know, the first and maybe foremost piece of advice is <clears throat> to pay more attention to one's anxiety, to lean into it more, to actually identify why am I feeling this way and what are the opportunities, excuse me, that this presents um, to deal with it, to read a book on anxiety, whether it's mine or another, to um, to go to therapy. I think it's the kind of thing where we have to lean into it and actually deal with it as opposed to trying to put it out of our heads through avoidance. Often um, people in positions of uh, leadership power will uh, sort of keep going, push themselves through it as opposed to dealing with the anxiety that they experience um, and grappling with it and finding opportunities to turn it into something positive. Um, so, you know, I definitely would caution against that and, and you know, take the time to deal with to deal with the issue. Yeah, yeah. And you also touch on the the role of spirituality. Um, sure. And uh, which, uh, and you say that faith and spirituality can be important tools sure. for facing yeah. anxiety. Yeah, just to clarify, even, you know, where, for whether people have a religious faith or none, um, a lot of folks, uh, um, I think, stand to benefit from and also do um, have higher order values like humility, like courage, like um, trying to find meaning and purpose in what we do. Mm. And anxiety can be parlayed into those values in very unique ways. Um, if we're focused on our happiness at all moments, then it actually makes it hard to really focus on what we want to do, what we value, where we want to go in life. Um, it's hard to really accept our humanity and the limits of our knowledge, the limits of our control, the fact that we're, you know, a speck of stardust and uh, our, our lives are comparably very small compared to all that of human and world history and, you know, that of the galaxy. And You emphasize you know, the, the importance of community. Uh, talk about that. Oh, so our connection with others. Yeah. 
So anxiety is often a unifier when people feel anxious and they cleave together. Uh, you said it before, you know, it's the kind of thing that can, uh, can help people to bond with each other, our, our strongest relationships. So it's the same thing, you know, on the one hand, there's the, there's a spiritual bonding, if you will, sort of that acceptance that I, my, my place in the world is very small and letting my anxiety seep in and accept that. And then there's that, that, that same effect, I believe, with our relationships with others, where our anxiety, expressing it, leaning into it, allowing it to penetrate our hearts and expressing that to someone else can really um, just create a greater sense of connection with them as well as with our spirituality. So I do think these things are related. Yeah, yeah. So where is your, what are your, the other uh, things on your radar screen right now in terms of your own professional planning and, and growth? Where, where am I going, going with this? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I don't know. I think, you know, writing a book for the general public has been a big step for me. To be perfectly honest, it's, uh, and Frank, it's, it's actually been quite an anxious step for me, <laughs> you know, for the last, what is it, 14 years I've been doing academic work. Yeah. And, uh, publishing papers and, and and research papers and and really working more within an academic environment, um, you know, speaking at different universities and and uh, collaborating with uh, colleagues internationally and, and of course regionally and nationally, um, you know, in terms of my clinical work and 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 administrative work, my program Center for Anxiety, you know, which I started on my own and caused me a lot of consternation at the time, is now actually has seven offices and we see over a thousand patients a year. Wow. Um, so, so that's, you know, very, you know, that, but that's something I know how to do because there's, you know, we, we take care of our patients, we have our strategies and we implement them and we see, you know, people improve. This is new territory for me. I've never been taught to deal with marketing teams, to be dealing with, you know, publicity teams, to be going on podcasts and sharing uh -huh. with the general public in a broad way, my, my thoughts about anxiety, as opposed to with individual patients or with my academic colleagues. So uh, I do feel like I'm out on a limb. Do I know where it's going to go next? Not a clue. <laughs> I don't okay. know. Okay. <laughs> I don't well, know. Well, thank you for being on this podcast. Uh, Dr. David Ross Moran, I want to thank you for being my guest on Shrinkwrap Radio today. Thank you. What a great conversation. Really appreciate you uh, taking the time to speak with me. It's great to be able to bring you another distinguished guest. Harvard professor David H. Ross Marin, whose new book, Thriving with Anxiety, makes the case that anxiety is not your enemy. Rather, it is potentially your ally, like the proverbial canary in the coal mine. As in that example, it's important to pay attention to it and take appropriate action. He says our culture has given us the wrong message. Within certain limits, Anxiety should not be considered pathological, but an appropriate warning. He's seeking to normalize anxiety, especially in today's environment. While anxiety has always been an existential reality, he says we are now living in a new age of anxiety in which the stresses we are subjected to are more intense than in former times. In large part, this 
is a gift of our ever-accelerating technology, which is bringing us change at an unprecedented rate. We are bombarded by alarming news from all over the world. We are starting to experience the real impacts of climate change. Suicide rates, especially among our teens, are soaring due to social media and the constant clamor of advertising messages that suggest we are not enough, not smart enough, not successful enough, not good-looking enough, not wealthy enough, not good-smelling enough, on and on. These messages play into our fears and can spiral out of control. However, Dr. Ross Marin's purpose is not to depress us, but to shift our perspective and gain control over our internal environment by utilizing proven cognitive strategies and health-promoting practices such as good sleep, exercise, diet, communion with others, mindfulness, and spirituality. What I like about Dr. Ross Marin's presentation is his self-disclosure that he, too, can lose his internal balance, but also can regain it using the disciplines he describes. And I admire the fact that he's not in denial about the external stressors in our world today. I think you'll find guidance in his book to get you in touch with your courage. The book, once again, is Thriving with Anxiety, Nine Tools to Make Your Anxiety Work for You, by David Rossmarin. And you can follow his work at https forward slash forward slash dhrossmarin.com. And Rossmarin is spelled R-O-S-M-A-R-I-N. Hello, Dr. Dave. This is Russell from New South Wales, Australia. You asked me to put together just a quick note to say why I was happy to support Shrinkwrap Radio. I discovered these podcasts totally by accident a few a few months ago and been systematically working my way through them. I was looking for ways to uh, increase my educational experience and content whilst travelling to and from work and stumbled upon your, your podcast yeah, quite by chance. I've been blown away by the uh, breadth and uh, sophistication and the, the richness of the educational resource that you've got, got going there, Dave, and really is a tribute to, to your hard work and dedication. I think like someone else may have said in the past on one of your previous podcasts, for me, the, the thought of you not doing this work through financial constraints was, uh, I guess, a big motivator for me to put my hand in my pocket. So keep up the good work, Dave. It's brilliant. Thank you, therapist Russell Davies there in New South Wales for putting your hand in your pocket and encouraging others on the fence to do likewise. Once again, time to shrink wrap it up. Thanks to today's guest, Harvard professor David Rossmarin, PhD, for discussing his newly released book, Thriving with Anxiety. There's plenty of good meat there to move us from terror to thriving. Next week, my London associate, Isabella Clark, will be speaking with Thomas R. Verney, a clinical psychiatrist and the author of eight books, including The Secret Life of the Unborn Child, which was published in 27 countries and 47 scientific papers. His most recent book is The Embodied Mind, Understanding the Mysteries of Cellular Memory, Consciousness, and and our bodies.
He's previously taught at Harvard University, the University of Toronto, York University, and St. Mary's University. Until next time, this is Dr. Dave reminding you to be kind to yourselves, others, and our precious earth. You've been shrink-wrapped by Dr. Dave. All the psychology you need to know, and just enough to make you dangerous.